0: Uh, our, our speaker today is, uh, is Genko, our teacher, uh, adjunct teacher and, uh, uh, Koshin is, uh, is, uh, at the Unitarian Church on Bashan Island. <laughs> so, uh, Genko, thank you.
1: Thank
2: you very much. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit today about the refuge of Sangha. So this month, uh, we're reciting the three refuges, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha each Sunday. And traditionally, when we recite these three times in succession, as we did this morning, we're committing to the Buddhist path as embodied in these three. And roughly speaking, the Buddha represents our own innate ability to reach enlightenment. The Dharma includes all of the teachings which help us along the path. And the Sangha are those that we practice with. You know, In a few weeks, many of us will begin a period of intensive practice together, culminating in sitting together in sesshin. Uh, And I would encourage everyone, whether or not you're going to formally take the intensive, to look at the practice plan form and uh, just see how your practice might manifest each of these refuges, because the plan is built around the three refuges Um, balancing them out, you know, it's all very well and good to say I'm focused entirely on uh, meditation. uh, But it's good to uh, make sure we check in with the other refuges as well. The way they're worded in the practice plan is uh, practice, the Buddha is practiced on practice focused on meditation and contemplation. The Dharma is practice focused on learning and reflection. And the Sangha is practiced focus on uh, building and supporting community. So we say Sangha, but what does that really mean? Originally, it meant the, the men who chose to leave their homes and families and possessions to live a mendicant life alongside the historical Buddha. So that was the beginning the first uh, sangha. They were joined early on by laymen, followers of the Buddha, who didn't leave home. They maintained a householder's life. And then um, later on by ordained women and lay women. And together, these four groups were known as the fourfold sangha. And initially, the ordained Sangha met together on the full moon and new moon days of each month uh, to recite the teachings and also to confess broken precepts, the rules by which the uh, community lived. And this schedule grew into uh, one of walking around and teaching during the dry season. While in the wet season, when it's literally impossible to uh, walk around very much in India, they would stay in one place to practice and meditate. So uh, monasteries grew up around that wet and dry season activity. And over time, the way in which we use the term Sangha has expanded well beyond its original meaning to include various forms of practice communities as they've taken shape in different places around the world. Um, Although in many parts of Southeast Asia, the Sangha continues to take that more traditional shape of ordained communities supported by lay followers. I should say that ordination doesn't make people different or better in a traditional setting. You could almost think of it as somewhat of a a division of labor where the ordained carry out their activities, which were meditation, study, ritual, um, gathering positive karmic energy, so to speak. And then they're able to dispense that positive uh, karmic energy to lay people in return for their offerings of goods and services. So as they would beg, uh, the lay people would offer them food. And um, nowadays, actually, um, families will... Uh, donate the food for a meal at the monastery as well that still continues today. And that kind of back and forth of offerings. Um, it was how they, uh, the lay and the ordained communities work together. Here in the West, many sanghas are primarily or completely lay people, uh, with very few ordained and the roles in the sangha are probably not as clearly delineated Um, But some of the same general principles hold true where people have different roles to play. We have the different officers, uh, for example, that are rotated.
3: Uh,
2: And beyond the edges of the more formal sangha, which perhaps has some membership or attendance expectations, we may speak of a a broader sangha as... uh, a community of mutual interest or include beings both sentient and non-sentient beyond human beings in our understanding of what sangha is the earth and all in it kind of an eco-sangha uh, is the way many of us see sangha now our son mike has a friend who often comes to visit him here in arizona and they sit in meditation under a huge old Sahuaro cactus. um, And his friend calls the cactus that one of the elders. And they speak of sitting under the cactus and soaking up its wisdom. And I know a lot of us have a similar feeling towards uh, uh, the wild aspects of the earth, both um, being supported by it and feeling a responsibility to it. And this is... Uh, part of what we consider sangha. But however formal or informal, expansive or specific, what we call a sangha really depends upon relationship. The uh, Japanese word for human is uh, ningen, which literally means uh, people's space, the space between people. We become human, In other words, only in relation to one another. Caring for these relationships is a key part of sangha. So initially, we may see sangha as providing something for us. When we say we take refuge in the sangha, it provides us with the container that we need uh, to do our practice. Um, But we also have to continue... Uh, continuously nurture Sangha in order to keep it going in a healthy way. So if, if Sangha is built on relationship, then we have to nurture relationship of, of whatever shape or size it might be, uh, whether it's one-on-one or a large group of people. It requires effort, it requires skill, it requires commitment, and it requires practice. It doesn't just happen by chance. So literally, we have to practice ways to maintain and nurture healthy community. Sangha can't just be a collection of people who come together randomly to sit in meditation and leave and go home. Sangha is not just a, a container or a label for us. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. called his version of Sangha, the beloved community he meant a c- group of supported like-minded people who have the same vision of what life together can be like and when we have a common vision we can establish guidelines for how we expect to behave with one another rules for living in community so to speak the early song developed quite a long list of rules for ordained men and an even longer list for the ordained women Lay people took the five precepts, and that would have been their rules for living. Uh, The same five precepts that we take here at the Zen Center. The precepts for the ordained were written in the Vinaya. The Vinaya is one of the traditional three collections of the teachings of the Buddha. and The specific rules changed over time, but the essential nature of them is really twofold. First, uh, what do we need to do with our behavior in order to create a calm mind to practice and a disciplined life? And secondly, uh, what do we need to do in order to live together with other beings? So there are really these two pieces. One key point about this is shared responsibility. We can't just assume someone else will do the work. and and that we can hang back all the time. Likewise, we can't just take on more than a reasonable share of work for a long time because it leads to burnout. So uh, this shared responsibility is true, not just for physical work, but for communications as well. Here, sharing responsibility means we relate to others with the confidence that they have some wisdom to offer us and that we are personally, inevitably leaving something out of our own perspective. So shared responsibility essentially means humility in all of our dealings with one another. In the early Buddhist ordained sanghas, the Vinaya was actually more important in this way uh, than the actual teachings uh, by keeping the sangha in um, harmony and order. It was was really critical to have that uh, roadmap. And it was said that the sutras, the teachings, would be abandoned long before the Vinaya as as, um, Buddhism deteriorated over time. But that once the Vinaya was forgotten, the rules for how to live together, the saffron robes of the monks would turn white, which was the color of lay robes, so that that ordained sangha would simply... Uh, vanish. It's important to remember that these early Sanghas were made up of human beings, though, and they were all works in progress like us, so there were often disputes over the rules and the level of asceticism required of monks. uh, That was very common. More and more precepts were added to the Vinaya over time as monks and nuns inevitably found ways to get around the rules. So if you read them, with that kind of historical sense you can kind of see oh they started with this and then kind of added pieces on okay you can't do this no you really can't do this and it's kind of fun to see at one point the buddhist cousin Devadatta, uh, who was a member of the sangha openly rebelled against the buddha's rule that monks should eat whatever food was placed in their offering bowls even if it contained meat um, that was the original rule. And he wanted a stricter rule requiring a vegetarian diet. And when the Buddha refused to change the rule, Devadatta actually left the order and started his own group, his own Sangha, which which was still in existence when Chinese Buddhists came early on to India to study with the Indian teachers. So it was a real um, historical split that happened. Uh, My personal favorite story um, about this dispute over rules is when there was one particular rule about bathroom etiquette, um, there was a dispute in the sangha about that, and it dragged on and on without a resolution. The Buddha entreated the monks to make a decision about how they were going to do things, and they still could not. So he actually left the monastery and took up residence in the forest for an entire rainy season. He said, I'm I'm gonna go sit out there in the trees. You all just let me know when you make a decision. So even the Buddha had his limits with this kind of uh, discussion. They actually sent monks out to uh, try to bring him back periodically. And he said, well, did you decide yet? No, forget it then. Hmm. So he was out there for the full rainy season. It's also said that on his deathbed, the Buddha asked his disciples to go through the Vinaya and weed out the unnecessary rules that had accumulated there just in his lifetime. Um, But after he died, they were unable to uh, come to agreement over which rules were unnecessary. So the reality is they kept them all. So Vinaya has many, many uh, rules and regulations that the ordained are supposed to follow. One of the best descriptions of Sangha I've heard is actually by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a a Tibetan teacher, very brilliant and very flawed teacher whose own Sangha, like many Sanghas, struggled to meet its own vision. And this is the way he describes Sangha. Having taken taken refuge in the Buddha as an example and the Dharma as path, then we take refuge in the Sangha as companionship. That means that we have a lot of friends, fellow refugees, who are also confused and who are working with the same guidelines as we are. Everyone is simultaneously struggling with their own discipline. As the members of the Sangha experience a sense of dignity and their sense of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha begins to evolve, they're able to act as a reminder and to provide feedback for each other. Your friends in the Sangha provide a continual reference point, which creates a continual learning process. They act as mirror reflections to remind you or warn you in living situations. That is the kind of companionship that is meant by Sangha. We are all in the same boat. We share a sense of trust and a sense of larger scale organic friendship. So taking refuge in the Sangha means being willing to work with your fellow students, your brothers and sisters in the Dharma while being independent at the same time. Nobody imposes his or her heavy notions on the rest of the sangha. Instead, each member of the sangha is an individual who is on the path in a different way from all the others. It is because of that that you get constant feedback of all kinds, negative and positive, encouraging and discouraging. These very rich resources become available to you when you take refuge in the sangha, the fellowship of students. The Sangha is the community of people who have the perfect right to cut through your trips and feed you with their wisdom, as well as the perfect right to demonstrate their own neurosis and be seen through by you. The companionship within the Sangha is a kind of clean friendship without expectation, without demand, but at the same time fulfilling. So we no longer regard ourselves as lone wolves who have such a good thing going on the side that we don't have to relate with anybody at all. At the same time, we must not simply go along with the crowd. Either extreme is too secure. The idea of, is one of constantly opening, giving up completely. There is a lot of need for giving up. So that's uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He speaks about giving up, letting go, opening up. And this is really the deepest meaning of taking refuge. What it means is not holding on to the various small attachments we have that make our lives feel comfortable or safe or familiar. Refuge is really about trusting this letting go, based on our understanding that grows through practice and hearing the teachings and through the support of the sangha. So if people have questions or comments, things you'd like to discuss, please just unmute yourself and
1: speak.
0: Uh, thank, thank you, thank you, I, I have a question. Sure. In in the Zen tradition, there is also a tradition of uh, of uh, solitude mm-hmm. and um, and uh, practicing alone uh, without a sangha, as Bodhi. Dharma did when we first came to China for a number of years. Uh, So they say, Mm -hmm. uh, how does, how does that, um, how does, how does, how does that work? How does, how does one go into that solitary space over a period of time? And, and, um, and also have a sangha?
1: I th- well, that's a,
2: it's a good question. Um, I don't believe that having a sangha to support you necessarily means that you got to do everything with them, right? I mean, if you think about how the original sangha started, they got together twice a month. And the rest of the time, they were each meditating under their own trees or whatever it was they were doing, they weren't necessarily clumped together in groups. Um, so I think that that solitary practice has been an essential part of Buddhist practice from the very beginning. You know, certainly the Buddha did that. He, he was with the ascetics for a while and then split off from them to practice on his own. So I, I think that that happens... Uh, practicing as an individual away from other human beings. I think that happens pretty regularly. Um, but if we have a really deep understanding of Sangha, we can appreciate that even when we're off on our own, we are somehow being supported. You know, perhaps um, people have taken on our responsibilities so that we can go off and practice on our own or uh, thinking about foraging in the forest we're being supported by the forest in terms of our uh, being able to nourish ourselves Uh, so there are many different ways that we can see the refuge of sangha reflected even in solitary practice yeah
0: with you
1: other questions or thoughts
4: Elizabeth, I'd like to speak to that because what I remember when we were studying Cold Mountain, Mm -hmm. um, there was the nun who, when the family chose to support her, could flourish in her practice. Mm -hmm. So Sangha was the family who supported her. And I suspect even, um, I I always want to call call him Daruma, Bodhisattva. Is that? No. Bodhidharma, Bodhidharma, um, had had someone to bring him food or support him during his uh, solitude. I mean, that's my picture. Mm -hmm. So even in this quiet of the self, we're supported by the um, attention and kindness of those around us even to let us just sit in the cave by ourselves. So,
2: yeah, I think that's very true. And part of uh, working with the refugees is to begin to understand these deeper and deeper layers of what Sangha truly means, you know, to become more attuned to where that support is coming from and, and appreciate it more. Yeah. I know, for example, when I sit in Sashin, I, uh, I have a much stronger sense at the end of Sashin of all the things that have happened to allow me to sit Sashin in terms of the cook who gives up time on the cushion to prepare meals, to uh, taking care of the dog here at home. I don't have to deal with the dog for the for the whole of Sashin because Charlie's taking care of the dog. Just simple things like that. But it becomes more and more of a subtle understanding of how we're supported. Yeah. Thank you.
4: Again, this is Bernetta. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, in the time of Zoom, we have really grown our sangha outside mm-hmm. of people sitting on Vashon Island. And and I have I carry around a worry that the folks that are outside of being able to come to our Zen Center regularly aren't getting aren't getting our support enough, or perhaps feeling connected enough. Like you know, I kind of think if you can come to coffee hour and have a cup of coffee with somebody, you're going to get to know them better and interact with them and learn about them. Are there any suggestions you have for ways we could make sure our larger sangha is? integrated with us and feel supported? Or is it up to those people to look look to us? I just wonder if there's any suggestions you have
2: that the second question you had was much easier to answer. Yeah. It's not up to, we're all responsible, right? It's a shared responsibility for figuring that out. And so that's definitely something that as a group, we need to look at is how, as we gradually transition back to doing things more and more in person, are we going to be able to include people? Um, And certainly Starting the West Seattle group was one way that we had uh, to do that, to say, we want to be able to include people who can't necessarily take the ferry over for Zazen each time. So I, I think that's an ongoing conversation that we have to have, coming up with creative ways to include people, have them feel included, and also recognize that To some extent we're not going to be able to make it totally uh, a level playing field. So,
1: yeah, very good question.
2: Other thoughts or or concerns about Sangha or about any of the
3: refuges? Yeah, thank you, Genko. It's Diane. Yeah. Um, I I like the um, i think you called it an eco Mm sangha you know that that broader sense and it it made me think about um, interbeing i guess that that idea that really um, we're so connected in so many ways with so many things um, that the idea of solitude isn't isn't even really possible because we're so connected. We 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 need so many other things in order just to survive mm-hmm. as a being,
4: you know, at this moment on the planet. So um, it made me think about that. So thanks. Yeah,
2: yeah. There there are actually groups that call themselves eco sangas where their focus is on uh, as a group on uh, connecting more with. Um, the natural environment and what can be done to support the natural environment as it supports us. So, yeah, I think that's a, a good one.
0: And yeah, Jason Worth at Seattle U who speaks with, to us occasionally that he has, he leads the eco song at Seattle university, mainly its students, you know, yes. not Jason's by far the oldest person. We went there once and we, out-aged everyone there, I think. <laughs> Times three. That's right. That's um, right. You know, and so I suspect that a lot of the younger song are more focused on that, but um, yeah. you know, we should all do because, yeah. you know, the, the ecosystem supports us and we need to support it. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of a, it's the, the interaction between the two groups or the two concepts. Right. And one thought
3: I had when you were mentioning, um, Genko, about um, when you're at Seshine, you're thinking about who has taken care of you and provided for you, and that includes the people who built the roads to get you there
4: and the electricians. Mm-hmm. To, you know, it's it's we do not exist in a vacuum. You know, even if you're in a cave.
2: <laughs> right, that's right. No, we did an exercise once in in one of my prison groups where I asked. Um, them to to do homework, which was to take uh, going to breakfast in the morning and uh, just trying to to go from that breakfast plate out and see what the kind of the chain of stuff that had to happen in order for them to be eating breakfast on that plate. And um, they had some really interesting insights when they came back. They found it a really good exercise to do but one poor gentleman, um, when I asked him about the plate, you know, and how he related to it, he said, oh, "I never even got there." He said, "I was still um, the people who were who were uh, making the razor blade, so I could shave before I went to breakfast." <laughs> you know, he he had gotten so involved in it that he'd never even gotten as far as the food. So it's yeah, it's a good exercise to do.
3: Uh, uh, yes, I, I wanted to give my input about um, being on Zoom because sure. I, I've i been attending from San Diego and um, I even have joined and become a member. Yes, I just wanted to say as far as us not being meeting each other in person, I feel a lot more kinship with your group because I can feel, you know, the warmth and camaraderie with Anshin, Koshin and a lot of your members, Joyce. Uh, whereas, um, before COVID, I, I was a member of a, a a real life Zen center here. And even though we were real live and meditating together and all, um, everybody had their egos. And it was hard after we did our one hour sitting Zazen, we'd split up, but everybody had their own thing. And there was not any interest. I didn't feel the warmth or anything. You know what I mean? So it, it being doesn't does is not a, a real criterion for for feeling you know togetherness so i, I love i love the group at, at puget sound um it's a i've i've checked out a, a set various um different online songas and i i just came back to puget sound because of what i the feeling i get from from the sangha there so that's my input. <laughs>
2: hmm. uh, thank you very much for that. I I agree. I think that uh, we've kind of got a head start in terms of being a supportive group of people, um, but it's you know it's like anything. It takes effort and commitment and skill and practice to keep that up. You, you can't just kind of rest on your laurels and go. Oh, this is what we've been doing all along. We just keep doing it; it'll it'll work. So, being continually attentive to um, the people coming and going and the situations that arise, I think uh, the use of Zoom. We've been very fortunate to have that. I don't know what we would have done without that tool. So it's you know, and I'm grateful for the. The gentleman who developed that program for us, because it's really literally changed how the world relates to itself in the last few years.
1: Yeah, but thank you. Other thoughts or observations? Okay, thank you, Ganko, so much.